0: death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons. Our concerns about today, worries about tomorrow, nothing can separate us from His love. It's great to see those of you in person today. It's, thanks to you, thank you for all of you who are joining us online. I'm so glad that there are ways to keep us connected. What a wild week it has been for us, uh, and to think that now for over two months, I knew I was launching a new sermon series today called Anchoring in the Storm, and little did we know the storm that we were all going to find ourselves in over the last week, and I know it's disrupted some of our lives, it's brought a lot of joy to our lives, and there's the storm of the, the, um, all the snow and ice, that has come our way last Sunday night. My parents knew that my mom was going to have surgery last Monday, was supposed to have surgery, and then start her chemo on Wednesday. So they knew the weather was going to get bad. So they went to stay in a hotel uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area across the street from the clinic last Sunday night. The hotel lost power all night. So they had to walk from the fourth floor to the bottom floor. My mom unable to carry any luggage at all. And her surgery was canceled. Chemo was canceled. And A lot of us have stories like that. The Berrymans are with us today. Berrymans, our brother Jim passed away Monday night, and I was on a Zoom call with the family Thursday as we're trying to think through funeral preparations, and this is not how we wanted to grieve. So to see all of you on the same pew today, knowing you've been in the same house for maybe 36 hours, I'm so glad you're all together, and we're going to celebrate your dad this afternoon and husband. Well, I'm so thankful for the crews who came to clean up our parking lot yesterday. I was out there with an extension cord and a hairdryer for a few hours, and and I got most of it myself. Uh, But I want I want to thank Brian Birdwell and Brandon Cooper, John French, and I probably should stop naming names because there were a number of people who helped out. And some of their intentions were to help clear the parking lot for the worship service, but I know a lot of it was wanting to make a clear, clean place for us to celebrate Jim Berryman's life this afternoon. We lost a dear brother, an elder in this church, so we're going to celebrate his life. Let me start with a story from back in 2009. Uh, Marquise Goodwin was a guy who played in the NFL for a number of years, and he had a friend, Corey Smith, and uh, not only were they professional football players, they loved to fish. For Marquise, this was something that developed in his life at a young age. It's he had uh, been through. A, he had a troubled childhood, and his grandmother taught him how to fish. It was an escape for them. So in the off season, that was his escape. He loved to go fish. And there was one day that the two of them, so Marquise and Corey, and they had a friend, William Bleakley, and another friend named Nick. They all decided they were going to go offshore in Florida, and they were going to go fish for. Uh, they were going to go fishing, and it wasn't just offshore in Florida. They were. This wasn't just a few hundred yards offshore. They ended up going. Uh, 50 to 60 miles offshore. There was a place they loved to fish out there, so they went out this one day and they knew, I mean, this was February 28th of 2009, so even off the shore of Florida, it's going to be chilly out there on the water, so they had their sweatpants and they were dressed for the for chilly weather. They had jackets on, they took a cooler, they had uh, drinks and food and ice, and they were planning on having a full day of fishing and after almost a full day of fishing, they could see a storm coming on the horizon, so they decided it was time to head back in, and that is when their 21-foot vessel, their boat capsized, went upside down. And these four guys, who all of them were either bodybuilders or played in the NFL, but even the four of them trying to get on a side of a vessel to turn it over in the water, even all the muscle between the four of them, they couldn't do it. So then they started to try to think through, okay, what are we going to do? And, and William Bleakley swam under the boat where he brought out a, a, an ice cooler so they knew they had some drinks and some food. And then they started to think, how could they help other people know, even though they're 60 miles out there, uh, what could they do? So they found the flare gun, but the flare gun was too wet. It wouldn't work. They found their cell phones that were inside baggies, but they were too far out to have cell coverage. And the sun was going down. And a storm was coming in. Could you imagine the feeling of helplessness? And then uh, the sun went down and about 12 hours later, and they know that because one of them had a watch on. It was 5.30 a.m., when Marquis was unresponsive, they were unable to bring him back. And then hypothermia began to set in. And, and people, a couple of them were delusional. They didn't know what was going on. So a few hours later, another one of them ended up just floating out to sea. And then there were two of them left, where uh, the story is that they basically held each other for 24 hours. And then another one was unresponsive. And then after 48 hours, where people at Coast Guard had been searching for them and couldn't find them. And after 48 hours, they ended up finding Nick, who was there just sitting on top of a vessel, delusional, didn't know what was going on. The doctor said he may have had about five hours left of his own life. And they found him. And if you go and you look up stories, there's, there's some debate of what really happened because Nick was kind of delusional himself. And what really happened and how did those other three guys lose their lives? And there were agencies who took this up to investigate, like, what happened. And the agencies and all the examination they did on the boat and conversations they had with Nick, it all boiled down to this. This tragedy happened because there was a mistake in anchoring. Then when they got out there, the fish, they dropped an the anchor. And the anchor ended up getting stuck in a reef. So when they saw the storm on the horizon and the, it was time for them to head back in... They knew the anchor was stuck, and one of them went full throttle on the boat. And any experienced boat driver knows this is not what you do if an anchor is ever stuck. And the problem was with anchoring. The mistake was an anchoring mistake. And I hesitate to tell the story today of three deaths out in the sea, to convict and to challenge us to take seriously how we anchor, So let me begin with this, that the good news today is we have an anchoring message. That the songs we sung today and the prayers we pray, we have an anchoring message. No matter what we go through, there is an anchor and a foundation. And this is a message that is good news for us, and it's good news for the world. And I also hope, and what I'm going to talk about the next six to seven weeks, is that we can somehow say that we also have an anchoring problem. That there are times in all of our lives when we reach for anchors that will temporarily keep us above the water, but they will not temporarily satisfy. They may sustain you for the season, but they're not going to eternally provide you with the security that you need. And we reach and we grab for anchors that may be people, things or substances or dreams, hoping they can sustain us and keep us afloat, but they'll never satisfy like our ultimate anchor. If you open your Bibles in the Book of Hebrews, I want to jump around in Hebrews just for a few moments. Now, when it comes to Hebrews, we don't know exactly who Hebrews was written to, and we don't know who wrote Hebrews, so there's a lot of debate about it. Now, most people believe, and they believe this for hundreds of years. Most people believe that Hebrews was written either to a lot of Jews who had become believers, so they may be second-century or second-generation Christians who were believers in Jesus, but that they are now backsliding into forms of Judaism. So because of all the social pressure in their lives, they had decided to follow Jesus, and now they were kind of holding on to Jesus, but now they're backsliding into their former way. So some people believe that. And others, they they broaden it just a little bit to believe that what was happening in the book of Hebrews is that it's written to second-generation Christians, and that there were a lot of people who were just drifting in their faith. It's not that they were denying their faith, it's not that they were denying Christ, it's that they were hanging on to Christ just enough that if they died, that there could be salvation for them, but they weren't taking seriously their confession or their commitment. And this is the way drifting works for any of us who have found ourselves drifting in life. Drifting from faith, drifting from the core of who we are, drifting from uh, the gospel, drifting from a church, as this rarely happens overnight, Where you just drift and go out to sea. It's like your eyes close for a season and you slowly begin to drift and then one day you open your eyes and you cannot believe you are further from the core of who God created you to be than you are. So many believe that when it comes to Hebrews, that there were people in the church who were just drifting from their faith and they weren't taking seriously their confession. So with that in mind, let me just move you through a few verses that I hope can be an anchor for you this week. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, it says this, "But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved." In Hebrews chapter two, verse one, it says, "We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away." In Hebrews three: one and two, "Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest, he was faithful to the one who appointed him. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. This is the author's way of saying, Jesus was faithful to the very end, and we're called by God for you to be faithful to the very end too. In Hebrews 6, 11 and 12, that we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy. But to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. In chapter nine, verse 28, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who were waiting for him, not passively waiting. This is actively waiting for him. In Hebrews 10:39, I want to come back to it, because I think this is one you may need to write on a note card and put up on your mirror this week. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. But to those who have faith and are saved. And then right in the middle of the book of Hebrews, right in the middle, you have this, these three verses that center around the word anchor. And it says this, chapter 6, verse 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And I want to read this from the message because I love the way, uh, I love the, how Eugene Peterson helps translate this. We who have run for our very lives to God have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and never let go. It's it's an unbreakable spiritual lifeline, reaching past all appearances right to the very presence of God, where Jesus, running on ahead of us, has taken up his permanent post as high priest for us in the order of Melchizedek. So today, we're launching a a seven-week journey for us. A sermon series called Anchoring in the Storm. So the next seven weeks, we're going to talk a lot about storms, and we're going to talk about anchoring. Now, the National Weather Service has said that every single moment we're alive, there are around 2,000 thunderstorms happening around the world. Imagine that. Every moment, around 2,000 thunderstorms. And they say that every year, there's about 16 million thunderstorms that take place on the globe. And that's just thunderstorms. There's storms happening all over the place. And and the way physical storms work, as we've discovered over the last 7 to 10 days, is storms don't come to a community or come to your life and ask for permission to come. Like storms don't reach out to you and say, hey, is there a day next week that works best for you to send a lightning and thunderstorm that possibly may make you lose power for 12 to 24 hours? Or, or we were thinking about coming this weekend, but we, we just wanted to check in and see how many outside weddings there were or outside birthday parties or get-togethers because we don't, we don't want to intrude. Like this isn't the way storms work. Storms just come and there's nothing you can do to stop them. And this is not just true with physical storms, with metaphorical storms. The storms that have come in your own life, whether it's through cancer or disease or illness or forms of tragedy. There are times we don't invite these. There are times they come because of consequences of behavior or poor habits. But there are times where the storms of life just come. And we find ourselves in the middle of them. And the journey we're on over the next few weeks of talking about anchoring and talking about storms... Every week, we're going to have the reminder that when it comes to storms, it's not about who you are in the storm, and it's not letting storms define who you are. Those storms, we often learn about who we are. For some of you, you learn that you're more resilient than you thought you were, or you were weaker than you thought you were. But what I want to argue for over the next few weeks is that in the storms of life, we learn about who God is not just who we are, that we serve a God who doesn't just wait for us to get on the other side of the storm to reveal His character, but a God who is with us every step of the way, a God who saves, who redeems, who heals, who lifts up, who builds up, who gets low. This is is our God. So this burden, this, this idea came to me last fall as I was thinking about the Easter season. And I was thinking about the idea of anchoring and the idea of storm. And as I continued to process and think through his sermon series, it developed into a book that we released a couple of weeks ago. And I know we're still in the process of trying to get a copy to every family unit in our church. And it's a book that's going to be a guide for us over the next seven weeks, kind of a companion to the sermon series where I'm not preaching every word from a chapter, but some of the principles in a chapter. And when it comes to the book, if you have it, great. If you don't, hopefully it's coming to you. You could find it on Amazon, and you could choose to read this just in one setting, or you could read it chapter by chapter, which is kind of how we're going to journey over the next few weeks. But when this idea came to me last fall as I was with God, it, it, it was more than just an idea for a sermon series, and it was more than just an idea that became a book. It was more than just an idea for a journey through Easter season. It was a burden for me Because I knew as we came to the end of 2020 and we're stepping into a new year, I knew 2021 was looking at us saying, please don't have such high expectations of me. Now, 2022, I think, is over there with, uh, hey, you can try to have high expectations. Hopefully, we all think 2022 is going to be better. But as we were coming to the end of the year, I knew we were coming to the end of the year and into a new year where many of us are reaching for an anchor because the pandemic and other storms of life have hit and the waves have come and we've reached for things that can just keep us above water. And if we're not careful, we're reaching for things that will never satisfy. And I want this Easter season, I want the journey up to Easter to be an anchoring season for the life of this church for us to take seriously what we are clinging to as our ultimate anchor in life, and as we take seriously what we are clinging to, that we are also thinking, who are the people in my life, in my neighborhood, in my job? in my family, within my circle of friends, who are people right now who are disconnected from God? Because the two questions this would drive every believer. One is, how am I clinging to the anchor in my life? And the other is, who in my life is disconnected from God, who needs to be anchored in God, and what am I doing to help and assist them? Because anchoring is not just about you anchoring in God, it's helping to anchor other people in God too. When it comes to anchors, An anchor doesn't protect us from the storm, but when the storms of life come, an anchor can provide security and stability and protection and connection that we need. So uh, I know for a number of us a few days ago, we started the Lent season. And uh, I, this is something Casey and I started when we were 21 years old. So now for almost two decades, we have honored the season of Lent. And we, so we take those six to seven weeks leading up to Easter as a season of reflection, of inspection, of deep commitment to certain spiritual disciplines that help transform parts of us. This also is a season of allowing God and asking God to point out things in my life that need to be transformed, that need to die so that the risen Christ can live in every part of me. Now, here's what I believe, is that there are going to be a lot of people in heaven who never honored the season of Lent, and there are going to be people in heaven who, for, for whatever reason in their life, never fasted for a day in their life. But what I also believe is this, is that you can be a mature Christian and never honor Lent, but you cannot be a mature Christian if you don't have serious seasons in your life of inspection and reflection. Uh, There's a a guy I've been uh, reading a lot recently, Uh, uh, um, Rich Valedo, maybe his name. If it's not, I'll post about it later. But this past week, I just wrote down a quote. He said, limited reflection usually leads to dangerous reaction. Limited reflection often leads to dangerous reaction. And there have been seasons in my life, I resist reflection and inspection. And you want to know why I resist it? Is because I don't want to know if there's something there that needs to change. So I learned this in my life last summer in another way when I was told by multiple people when I would take my car in to get an oil change that my Honda Civic, that the transmission was about to die and I needed to prepare to to put a new transmission in it. I resisted this for months. I didn't want Chad Chapman to look at my car. I didn't want some people to look at my car. Because I didn't want to know what the price tag was going to be on it. And just maybe if I didn't think about it, maybe the problem would just go away. And this is true with some of you. You've had issues with your body before. With, you've had shoulder pain or back issues or maybe other things going on with your body. And you did not go to a clinic or a doctor because you didn't want to know what was wrong, either because you didn't want to deal with it or you didn't want to believe it was reality or you didn't want to know how much it was going to cost to fix it. And maybe it would just go away. So sometimes what keeps us from going to God for reflection and inspection is I don't know if I want to deal with the parts in me that God is so eager to transform. So I want to give you a challenge this week, a spiritual discipline to practice, is that at some point you will take Psalm chapter 139, verse 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's anything offensive in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. That you will take Psalm 139, 23, and 24. That you will pray that and read that a couple of times. And then that you will sit with God for five to ten minutes and give God a chance to respond. And this is one of the most dangerous things you could ever do is to ask the creator of the world to inspect and to search your heart. But when we do this in the presence of God, we know that anything God reveals is not because God is bringing shame or an overwhelming sense of guilt or because God wants to tell us how bad we are. It's because God wants to help us to look more like Jesus. So Anything God reveals comes from a heart of a God who has our best interests in mind. He wants to lead us closer to who God is. There may be some of you participating right now, and you're listening to all this, and the journey we're going to be on, talk over the next few weeks about storms and anchors. So the next six to seven weeks, we're going to focus on some of the storm, storms that show up in the Bible. So Noah, and Jonah, and Elijah, and uh, Jesus, and Acts chapter 27, and I don't want to look so much at the details of those storms, I want to look at what do we learn about God in each one of those stories. And this is going to lead us up to Easter where we celebrate the ultimate storm of Jesus' defeat of darkness and sin. And some of you may be watching right now, you may be here right now, you may be thinking, your anchor has never been stronger than it is right now. Like your faith, you have never been more deeply anchored in God. And our response to that is, I praise God for it. And my challenge to you is, help other people anchor. Anchor. Don't be like Rose in the Titanic, right? Because anybody who's seen the Titanic, can we all agree that there was enough room on that board for multiple people? Can we just agree with that? right, don't be like Rose, where you find some board that keeps you afloat and it's just for you. That the good news of Jesus isn't just for you, it's to share. So as you anchor deeply in God, Who in your life is God asking you to help anchor to? And there may be some of you watching today, or you're here in person, and you may be thinking, your anchor has never felt weaker than it is right now. And this is the place you need to be. Because we're not a church that's going to have a message that's going to make you feel guilty or chastise you. But we want to come alongside of you in every way we can to be a friend, or to take your hand and to help link you and connect you to the ultimate anchor in life. There's a movie that was released back in 2003. It's called We Were Soldiers. And it's a movie that um, <clears throat> it was uh, based, it's based on a true story during the Vietnam War. And there are moments of the movie that it is showing you these intense battle scenes. I mean, it, very intense. And then there are moments of the movie that show you what life was like back on the base. In all their homes, where you had women and children who were trying to live their lives, yet they knew every time their husbands went out in one of these battles that there were going to be husbands and men and daddies who weren't going to return home. So there's some intense moments back on the base where uh, sometimes dozens of these women are finding out in the same day that their dads and their husbands are not returning home. And there's this one deleted scene. So if you go watch We Were Soldiers, this scene's not going to show up. It's a deleted scene. As you know, I mean, every movie has scenes that they, they created that don't make the finished product. And there's one deleted scene. And it's a, it's a scene that comes. It's a Sunday morning in church. And it's a week that many of them found out that their dad, their husband, the man in their life isn't returning home. Many of these women just found out that they are now new widows. And they go to church. Now in this scene, there's an older couple in the back, and I'm not going to be able to point it out to you, but the main woman in this scene is playing her from real life. She was there for this moment. And here's this widow, this new widow, who was tasked that day in the church to stand up and to sing a song. And I want you to watch this 90-second clip just to see how this happens. Our offertory hymn, Katherine Metzger. Nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness (sighs) On Christ the solid rock I stand. All ground is sinking sand. When darkness fails, his lovely... ...that scene is that it shows the power of the church. And when there are moments when we cannot get the words out about our foundation and anchor, the church sings the song. But today, if you're struggling to get it out of you... The church sings with you and for you. This is our anchor. This is our salvation. So for the next few weeks, what we're going to talk about every Sunday is that do not let the storms of life define you. Let they illuminate who God is in you. And it's not who you are in the storm. It's who God is in the storm. So can we stand together and let's sing this as a